This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we try to solve them. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And to get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and maintenance stories, uh, simply text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and our mailbot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. So once again, text SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to get on the list. So I discovered we have an entire new listener base. You're going to love it. And we're going to, we're going to have to ask these new listeners to send us emails so that we know how many we have, whether it's one or two or three. It's not, it's not the local prison, is it, Paul? No, I tried them. They, they refused. But anyway, so Clay and I, a friend of mine, uh, are talking, uh, you know, after church last week, and he says, the weirdest thing happened at my house the other day. He said, I'm in the living room, and I hear these people talking in my kitchen. And I'm thinking, nobody's at the house except for Christy, who's in the kitchen, and who is Christy talking to? And then I realized one of those people was you. I'm like, I was not at your house, Clay. I promise. I was not at your house. He said, I went in the kitchen, and I had firmly identified that you were in there talking. People are laughing. It's a party. And I go in the kitchen, and my wife, Christy, is listening to your podcast. <laughs> now, Christy is not an aviator. Clay is not an aviator. They fly commercially and that's it. So I, I have to go find Christy. I found Christy. Why are you listening to an aviation podcast? She said, it's so much fun. I just laugh all the time. I have no clue what you're talking about. But there's just a lot of laughter and I enjoy laughing. So <laughs> she <laughs> she cleans the kitchen while she's listening to the podcast. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's so interesting. Uh, we have at least one non-traditional listener. We just need to make sure our content, you know, is slanted to all of our listeners. Okay. So <laughs> no no dirty words or, or graphic stories, right? So well, you know, keep, I mean, keep it clean. That's what you're saying. <laughs> he's saying we, I think he's saying we're not supposed to get too deep in the weeds. Yeah, I don't oh. think we need to stay out of the weeds. You know, don't need to be too net and all. Uh, <laughs> I, I was okay. in shock that she. That was would... directed at you, Mike. No weeds. No. <laughs> no. Weeds. I cut. I cut the grass. I stay above the weeds. Stay above the weeds. I, oh. Yeah. I wonder how many many people listen to car, car talk who didn't own cars. I don't know. 
I think actually a lot did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and, you know, they, they charged extra for marital counseling because they got a lot of calls from, you know, the, you don't want to say the non-driving spouse, but anyway, we have at least one listener that's non-aviation related. Good. Well, I think we met a lot of listeners at um, Oshkosh. It was kind of fun. That was a blast. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. 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 Looking forward to doing that next year. Maybe yeah, we can me do too. a couple of sessions next year. Absolutely. Our first question is from Greg, who has a question before he begins squeezing that paint gun. Go ahead, Greg. How are you guys doing today? I appreciate yeah. you having me on the show. Glad awesome. to have you. Yeah. I'll make my question a little more specific than in my email. I, I currently live in, uh, in Utah in the Salt Lake Valley, where priming really isn't an issue um, if I was just going to be staying in the area. But in the RV town I'm about to build, I'm really wondering if I take the time to do it. My in-laws live in Tacoma. They, the airport I would fly in there is Tacoma Narrows, which is right on the sound. And then my family lives in New England, Maine and Vermont, which is also an extremely humid area. And I'd probably be having the plane stay there for extended weeks, I'll call it a month, maybe two months out of the year. And I didn't know if that would justify spending the time to prime the inside of the airplane or if I should uh, you know, save myself the time and energy and get to the finish line more quickly. So I'm glad you qualified that because in, your, in the question that I'm reading, all it says is, should I prime the airplane? And I didn't get that you meant the inside. I was thinking, well, yeah, if you're going to put paint on, you're going to put primer underneath. That's how you make it stick. Makes a lot more sense now. I, I get it since I'm already talking. <laughs> the, the, well, I'm always already talking. The Cessnas that I spend a lot of time working on were never primed from the factory. So like Colleen's Cardinal, no primer on the inside. It has a layer of pure aluminum on each side of the alclad, which is what alclad means. And uh, they've only lasted, how long has your airplane lasted, Colleen, with no primer? It's like 40 years. Six, 50, yeah. 50, yeah, 40. Yeah, 40 yeah. something years. Mm -hmm. With no primer, that's terrible. And she lives in, in San Diego. So it seems to be surviving okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, I 40 years from now, you may, work, you may revisit that. But, but, but so you're going to leave the inside completely unpainted? That's just to kind of shortcut, just make it quicker to fly? Did well get to the finish line quicker. Yeah, I've, I've, on all the Vans Air Force, I'm building an RV-10 mm -hmm. and everything that you read, everybody's generally all over the place as far as every, you're either a primer or people say just don't worry about it, skip that step. Uh, you, you have the alclad alum, aluminum, so you're protected, and everybody makes the point that uh, you know th there's plenty of planes out there that that have no primer on them at all on the inside. But I, as a builder, I'm I'm assuming I'm going to scuff up the inside a little bit, and some of that clad is going to get worn. But maybe that's not. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it. Well, plus. Plus, the alclad is vulnerable every place it's cut and every place it's drilled. And the, the, you know, the corrosion typically will start like on the edge of a, of a panel. I can't imagine not 
not priming it. Yeah, Paul pointed out, you know, the Cessna never primed the the inside of their airplanes unless they were ordered as a seaplane. And then when they restarted production in 94, they went to the opposite extreme. Literally every piece of aluminum that gets riveted on those airplanes is 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 dunked in a tank of uh, epoxy primer before it ever gets riveted on so that everything is is primed inside and out, every, every every piece of aluminum. But the real question is, how long is it going to last? I mean, I hate to, you know, like the military builds airplanes that are disposable, or they used to during the war, right? And they, they're still around. Well, and I think that's why Cessna, when Cessna was building those airplanes back in the 60s and 70s, they assumed that the useful life of those airplanes would be about 10 years. It never occurred to them that people were going to be flying them for 50 years. It does increase a, a lot of labor to prime those skins before you put them on. That's a lot of work. I think now that I understand <clears throat> the question, I would vote for not priming and just make a nice interior and cover it up. I think it'll probably, <laughs> it'll probably outlast you. And what's, what's that noise the engine's making? I don't know. Just turn up the radio a little louder. It'll, it'll be fine. No. I, yeah. I was hoping to skip priming and go with yeah. the, uh, I forget yeah. the fog that you guys have said. I know I've heard it in yeah, past. Yeah, like uh, Corrosion X or ACF-50, yeah. yeah. You can do that. You can um, do that. I, I would probably... But that doesn't, in, have, that doesn't last very long. You have to do it every couple yeah. of years. It, I think if I were in your position, and I was actually back in 2004, I had an RV-10 that I was building. And when our, our hangar burned down, so did the RV-10, and that was kind of the end of that. But... Um, I think I would go with not priming the inside and maybe spraying a light coat of AV8 uh, or Bow Shield, which is a, it dries to kind of a hard wax consistency and you can spray it at any time and it won't get all over, well, it kind of will get all over everything, but it'll do a, a really good job and it's it can be done after the fact. And we do it on live airplanes and it's a one-time, it's a one-time deal. Wow, I like that. It sounds like a great journey. Enjoy it. You know, try not to just get fixated on got to get it finished. Enjoy the uh, the build process because it's something I always wanted to do and probably will never do it now. Your daughter will love, I think, to learn how to set rivets. My my daughter, Lydia, bucked some rivets and uh, did some stuff when we were doing the wings. And she still talks about that today. She had a good time. Awesome, and we're doing we're doing the practice kit right now, and it's been fun. I thought I thought it was all pull rivets in, on an RV. No, not on the tens and sixes and sevens. Those are all solid rivet airplanes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think the RV twelve. Yeah, and the fourteen. The I don't keep up with those very much, but I think those are all pop rivets. Yeah, you got to drive the rivets on the the earlier RVs for certain. I get the benefit of everything being final sized, at least. I don't have to. Oh, yeah. Clico it together. Yep. I do it pretty much deburr, Clico it together, and have at it. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, it's, it's a great question, Greg. And I think anybody who's building or considering building experimental will find that an interesting discussion. So we appreciate the question. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Good call. Appreciate and it, guys. Good luck. Good Thanks, luck Greg. Thank you. Our next question is from Russ, who is ready to fire up the CNC machine. How are you doing, Russ? Good, Paul. Thank you for your time. Yes, I have a. I fly with a friend who has a 1979 Cessna R182 that the lower door hinge on the left side is cracked, 
at the last annual inspection and the uh, A&P AI guy said that it was so expensive to replace that maybe you ought to consider getting rid of the airplane and oh, parting gosh. it out. <laughs> oh, uh, I looked and I, uh, after that I looked and I can find some aftermarket parts and some replacement parts in a junkyard here in Phoenix. But uh, I thought I could make one, and I do have a CNC machine and a scanner, and I would be interested about owner-built parts. And my friend was a little reticent about uh, getting into that and going down that direction. Well, Mike and Colleen are going to dive into this one big time. Oh, but, boy, yeah, are yeah. we ever. <laughs> so, but before, before, I, before I jump out of the way— um, just a couple of things. We're talking about the, the cabin door hinge, correct? Correct. No. Okay. So it's the cabin door hinge. Those are available. You can buy those from Cessna. They are pricey. You can get them out of salvage yards. But the main thing is, once you get this taken care of, keep them lubricated. If you'll keep them lubricated, they won't crack and break like yours is done. But so it's the, the binding the, of the hinge pin that has broken it then? Yeah, it's it. Once it starts to wear, it, you have all this friction. And it just constant wear and tear on it, and eventually it, it breaks and comes apart. So, go lubricate the co-pilot side. They don't break as often because they don't get used as often. So yeah, keep that really well lubricated. But the owner-produced part is a phenomenal question because it comes up in our shop, and I'm ready to hear how to do this. Hey, hey, Paul, just out of curiosity, do you have a, a, a spitball idea of what what Textron wants for that hinge? How proud are it, they of de- that hinge? I don't know what, I don't know, this is 79 model, I haven't looked that one up. On the restart airplanes, the last time I looked for one, it was a couple of grand. Uh, just And that's just for half of the hinge. Uh, and they had them in stock. But, uh, so it's it's a... It's totally a, unreasonable. Probably saying that the airplane should be parted out is a little bit over yeah, the that top. Yeah, that was really way over the top for a, a couple of thousand dollars part. I was but, surprised. And when he talked to me, he got really panicky about what he was going to do other than take the doors yeah. off. Because I know you can fly it without the doors. But well, that's let, let, let's let's focus focus on, on the question of the, of the unproduced yes. part. The trap you don't want to fall into is to try to fabricate one that's better than the original. The key phrase is at least equal to. But if you make it better than the original, that constitutes an alteration. And then it gets complicated. Then you have to decide whether it's a major alteration or a minor alteration and and, and stuff. So the best strategy is to reverse engineer the part and make one that is as identical as it is possible to do made of the same material with the same dimensions and characteristics and so on and it, you you absolutely are allowed to do to to make an owner produced part to to replace it but the thing is that you need to convince an A&P uh, that it's okay to install that owner-produced part. And so, and in order to do that, he's got to be convinced that it's an airworthy and conforming part. So one of the best ways to do that is to is to get the A&P involved in this whole process, make him your co-conspirator in the creation of the part so that when it's done, he's sort of locked and loaded and ready to, to put it on the airplane, sign it off as airworthy. 
the the problem you're going to have, which is a problem that we have, is an owner shows up with an owner-produced part, and like Mike said, if we're not involved in it, we don't have any clue what you did. Did you have any drawings? Did you have any? Do you do any testing to make sure it's of equal serviceability and strength and all that? The other thing is, your mechanic is a little afraid to install something that doesn't have a factory part number. You're going to have to, before you go off making this part, the person that installs the part has the greatest liability in terms, in the eyes of the FAA. If I install a part, then I have to be the one that says, yes, this part is an acceptable part for me to install. So as Mike uh, alluded to, you're going to have to be sure that your mechanic is going to be willing to install whatever it is you fabricate. And that, I think I would start there before I did anything else. Yeah. You, you, you want to get him involved in, in, in the fabrication of the part so that he he feels comfortable with it. And and Russ, Russ is proposing that he could make it out of billeted aluminum versus the stamped aluminum sheet, which is you think that's how it was made. That's I, how I think it was made, but I don't know. You're not sure. I haven't taken it off the airplane. I haven't seen it off the plane yet. Are, are you able to remove... Can you remove the part and um, blueprint it somehow so that you've got some kind of, you know, something that you can, are you going to CNC it or are you going to hand machine it? Well, I was going to CNC it, uh, but I believe it's riveted on. Um, Paul, I'm sure. Yeah, knows. you can just drill it off. It's easy to get off. You're going to have to take it out anyway. Yeah, it's on yes, like seven or eight rivets. It's not a lot. Is, is that something uh, A&P has to do is to remove it or just to no. install it? No. Anybody can take stuff off. Right. You might heat <laughs> it up. But <laughs> yeah. so you can take a chainsaw to the airplane and cut the right. wing off and, and, and not don't violate any regulations. <laughs> I don't recommend it. But the, the main thing is to focus on making it as exactly the same as the original as possible. Just because you can make it better than what the factory did doesn't mean you should, because if, if you do, then 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 you've altered the type design, and now you have to justify the alter the, the alteration. Or, or what'll happen is the hinge itself won't fail next time, but the door around it will fail because <laughs> it was beefier than the door or the, <laughs> yeah. the you know the other side. Well, you know that. So you definitely want to. Yeah. It, it's a balanced system, and you want to keep the balance. And you do want to keep yeah, the weight well, balance the ability of the airplane to put, in check. Uh, football bearings in it and all kinds of things if I wanted to, but it wasn't going to go that far. I was just oh. looking at machining it out of a out of a solid strap and making it look like it. I could even uh, engrave the part number in it if that would make you feel better. Oh, yeah. That, that's a great <laughs> idea. Cool. Absolutely. I got a laser engraver and wait, I got a machine. Wait, is that a, is that a copyright infringement? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, he's not selling it, so it's okay. Yeah, I don't I'm think sure you can copyright would. a number. <laughs> <laughs> I can number it anything I want. It just happens to right. be Textron's number too, right? But you know, as as aircraft are getting older, the parts are less available, and the um, the loophole that we have for a loophole, the rule we have for owner approved an owner supplied part is something to try to take up the slack when parts are not being produced anymore. And as long as they meet the requirements of you know of equal, not equal or better, equal fabrication and equal dimensions. Then it's it's as if you got the part from Cessna, only you paid a lot less money. Hopefully, well, well we were talking about three D printing some interior parts as well. Yeah, no problem with that. I wouldn't think. 
you need to pay attention to materials. The good part about interior parts are that replacing interior parts, uh, we're talking about the, the upholstery and the trim and stuff like that. That's that's a preventive maintenance item. So you don't have to get an, an A&P involved. You can just do it yourself. When I say you, I mean the owner of the aircraft and sign it off on his own signature so he doesn't have to convince an A&P that, that this is... Well, he might have been talking about a door handle, which isn't trim, so it depends on... No, like cup holders that are just broken and crazy. Yes, important things, you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The little plastic trim around the fuel selector valve is all... I I remade mine, uh, exactly that part, out of composite, and it's beautiful, and it's much better than the crappy plastic that they, the ABS plastic that they used in the original. So yeah, those kinds of pieces, we have much better processes now for making. You could even make it out of metal and make it beautiful if you wanted to shape the metal. Yeah. If you had a lot of time. uh, That's interesting. (laughs) You know, it's, it's gotten a lot easier with the laser scanners and CNC machines where you can scan the part if you have a, if you have something to start with and then then it's almost ready to start machining uh, within minutes. So it is something that's available, or you can send it to a 3D printer and print it just as well if you desire to do that. Now, so now, Paul, we've been Paul, going, you, talking you, both directions. Paul, you've got a bunch of moles in Textron. So <laughs> why do you think they have the audacity to charge thousands of dollars for a door hinge? Because they make one, right? Or two. Uh, it, it is an interesting, uh, I have had a lot of conversations with Textron about their parts. They have a form. If we buy a part, oh, let's just imagine it might be a downlock switch for a Cessna 210 that you can find on Mouser because the part number is stamped on the side of the, of the switch. It's a common part. So going to get it at Mouser or Newark or any of those places is totally legit. It's not a, I'm, I'm happy to tell the FA that I go get this part uh, because it is the same, the exact same part. And you can buy it for 250 bucks. At one point, Textron was selling it for around $1,000. So there's a form that service centers can use to say, hey, this is a problem. We can get it aftermarket for this. You send it in. And chances are somebody, an intern or somebody, will take it up to some committee. And usually within a day or two, the price gets adjusted. So if McFarlane or someone like that builds this part, which they might, you might want to check that as well. They're one of the biggest producers of replacement parts for airplanes, like these sort of parts. Once they start making it, and Cessna is advised that, or Textron is advised that uh, McFarlane makes a door hinge for half of what Cessna does, Cessna will often bring their price down. So you can challenge those things, but they are expensive. I'm a little bit surprised here, because it, it was always my impression that the parts that were priced outlandishly were the ones that didn't get replaced very often, you know, no, nose gear trunnion or something. But the parts that regularly wear out and break and, and, and there's a fairly steady demand for, like door hinges, I, I would have expected to be priced more reasonably. Well, that is generally the case because they spread the the setup cost over a larger quantity of parts. If you want to buy a carry-through spar for a 210, they're going to build seven at a time, and they don't know how long it's going to take them to sell all seven. So for 56 pounds of aluminum, you pay 
$19,999.99. Literally. Um, <laughs> but a, a door hinge, you would think, yeah, there's, there's going to be they, more they of them. They crack a lot, you know. They do right. crack a lot. Um, I don't know. I would think that we would see more of those get replaced. But, uh, yeah, the price is still pretty high, and I'm not real sure why. Maybe they course, just there, haven't there been may, challenged. There may be, may be a chicken and egg problem here. It may be because they're priced so high that a lot of people get them from salvage yards yeah. or could, try to yeah. make them themselves or that's something. That's probably yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> but at some point, if someone is making one uh, for sale on the open market, that challenge may be what it takes to get the prices down from Dextron. Yeah, no, I mean, I can understand that that downlock switch being four times what you can get it from Mauser for because Textron probably has to pay the same price that you do for Mauser, and then right. they got to have a profit, and then the distributor yeah. has to have a profit, and so on. So, and they really don't want to bother with selling all those little parts. If you can get it aftermarket, I, for the most part, I think they're happy to do that. Very good. Well, I, I appreciate your uh, thoughts and comments about it. And uh, yeah, the AMP was. Uh, okay with the idea you know he wanted to see it of course before it was installed but cool. uh, well obviously he would see it before it was installed but he said whatever if it looked good do. he would install it so whatever yeah, you do just, just, don't scrap just, the airplane yeah no. just try to make it as identical as you possibly can to the yeah. to yeah. the original lubricate back to colleen's comment about stamp versus machine <laughs> yeah is there any is there anything different if the process is different that makes it is that going to, you know, it's still up to the A&P though, right? I mean, if I machined it's out of a solid piece of aluminum versus stamping it, I don't have any way to, to process that. As long as it's that. the same material? Well, I... he won't be able to make it out of the same material more than like. Well, first off, he has to figure out what that is. And if you can determine what that is, great. If you call Cessna, they may or may not tell you what it is. Uh, they're not going to be excited to do that. They will not give you prints of a part that they still sell. They may not give you prints of a part that they don't sell. So, and that's part of the making the part uh, at least equivalent to the original is if you don't know what the materials are, how do you do that? Because 7075 aluminum is not the same as a forged piece or a stamped piece or a rolled well, there, piece. Well, there, there are lots of labs in including aviation laboratories in Houston that you can you can send a little piece of stuff and and they can uh, tell you what what alloy it is that might yeah. be the best so thing that to do. I mean yeah. you're as a owner produced part that's you're gonna have to jump through some of those hoops it's not just a simple go slap something on the airplane kind of deal that's probably the hardest challenge for you making it is probably easier than just figuring out what it's made out of might be yeah I yeah. had given that any consideration yeah all right. Excellent. Thank you. Interesting question. Yeah. I, yeah. I love hearing about people fabricating parts for airplanes. I mean, <laughs> my best friends are machinists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's great. To uh, have we you. have a lot of fun. I build a lot of hot rod parts and some other stuff, but nobody cares about that. You know how that goes. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do what you want on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, appreciate the call, Russ. It was good to talk to you. Our next question is from Frank, who's going down the slippery slope of oil. Go ahead, Frank. Thanks, Colleen, and thanks, everybody. Uh, love your show as an engineer, pilot, and now a new owner of an old plane. I just love what you guys do, and I'm learning so much. So thanks for what you do. Good. My question is that uh, I am um, I religiously change the oil, get it 
checked and everything like that. And everything's working great. No problem at all there. But I've heard many great things about synthetic oil. Uh, my two cars, I have uh, one car has 180,000 miles on, another car has 210,000. And I use synthetic oil all the time. So I love it. I'm also lucky to be at an airport, based at an airport that uses, that has MoGas, a good, reliable supply of MoGas. I have the STCs and I use MoGas whenever I can, getting the lead out, right? <laughs> and, and so I'm really happy about that. So I understand that with synthetic oil, you can't run 100 low lead. And so what I did is I went back and looked at the first year and a half of ownership and I'm running at about 20%, just under 20% of 100 low lead versus MoGas. And that's mostly because when I fly, you know, out of my airport and other places, it's not as easy to get MoGas or unleaded fuel. So my question then really is, is there a magic percentage where I shouldn't use synthetic oil? Or if you use any 100 OLED, you shouldn't use synthetic oil at all. What, what kind of airplane are you flying? Uh, Cessna 182. It's two years young, uh, younger than me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's a certificated airplane. The reason I ask is that, that, at least to the best of my knowledge, there is presently no full synthetic aviation, uh, piston aviation oil on the market. Uh, Mobile used to have one back in the day, um, and they got, they got sued off the market in a hail of uh, class action lawsuits because it wrecked so many engines. Of course, everybody was running on 100 low lead back then. There are full synthetic automotive oils, but you don't want to use automotive oil in an aviation engine because the... Uh, they use metallic a- additives that create um, ash and stuff in aircraft engines that, that's harmful. So you don't want to use automotive full synthetic oil in an aircraft engine. And as far as I know, there are no full synthetic piston aircraft oils on, on the market anymore. I, I expect that once we complete our transition to unleaded fuel, which I would guess is going to be at least five years, Somebody, I, probably not mobile, but somebody, Shell or Phillips or somebody is going to is going to come forth with a with an all uh, synthetic piston aviation oil again, but presently uh, none are available. So the, the, probably the best you can do is to is to run a semi synthetic like Aeroshell fifteen W fifty, which and, is what uh, I run now. And that and and you know I, I'm not a big fan of 15W50 in engines that are running primarily on 100 low lead. But if you're only running 20% of the time, I think you'd be fine with. So what's with the magic the percentage, Mike? Is it 50/50? I don't I don't know that there's a magic percentage, Colleen. We 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 have the worst combination that we have. The ones that are really troublesome are large displacement engines with small oil sump capacities, like the engine in the Cirrus or the Columbia or something, where you've got this big monster 550 cubic inch engine with an oil sump that that only holds eight quarts and nobody runs it over six because it blows the top two quarts out the breather. So you're asking a small amount of oil to absorb a large amount of lead-laden blow-by and uh, Synthetic oil doesn't doesn't handle that very well. Synthetic oil is wonderful in every respect, except for the, its inability to handle lead from blow-by. And once we get rid of the lead, that problem's going to go away. So this is a Cessna 182, Correct. which is a, a lower displacement engine, 470 cubes, and has a, a pretty good-sized oil sump. It's either 10 or 12 quarts. Well. 12 quarts. So, which you probably run around 10, right? Yeah, it, it, 
Um, it's it sits right at about eleven is where where it yeah. sits. Yeah. So so you you probably don't have a particularly terrible case even running a semi synthetic and especially if you run Mogas a lot. So I think you're in good good shape. Great. Yeah, I I just got out of my annual and did, did the borescopes and everything looks great. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, yeah, just uh, you know, like I said, I, I've 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 got old cars and I have an old plane and, <laughs> you know, I just want to keep them both running, uh, you know, as, as, as long as possible. Well, great. That was uh, very interesting. I, uh, did you really mean full synthetic or did you mean semi-synthetic when you asked the question? I, I meant full synthetic because that's did. what I okay. used in, in, in my cars. In and, your cars. And, okay. Yeah. And just to know, I use 15W50 now, so it, yeah. it is what I use now. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to know if that was, so I'm doing the best I can right now. And that's perfect. That's Good what job. I'm doing. Good, good. Well, thank you for the question. It was very interesting, and it was fun talking about your airplane, Frank. Thank you all very much. Good to have you on, Frank. Our next question is from Ryan, who's trying to see the light. Good to see you, Ryan. Hey, nice seeing you all. Thank you for having me on. Mike, Paul, Colleen, I I think I've watched every episode of your show or watched, listened to, is usually my workout mix, believe it or not. So oh, when okay. I'm on a treadmill or elliptical, that's uh, that's what I'm listening to is aviation. So yeah. Cool. Die hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Uh, we have a Cherokee 140. It has an intermittent landing light prop. Now this, uh, to preference this, in the, at the, when I submitted this question, it was right around annual. That was in March. And I squawked it for the A&P to check out. They checked it out. They took out annual. And the light still was not working when it was really, really cold out. So what I did is I went in. I took a space heater with me, fired up a space heater, put it against a fuse panel. And uh, the landing light turned on when the uh, space heater heated up the fuse panel and the cold hanger there. So I think I identified the problem being the fuse. Is there any way to reset the fuse or is that something like where we need to get a new fuse put in? And the reason I ask is our AMP is a little, he's a slight bit difficult to work with. <laughs> is, this, is this literally a fuse or is it a circuit breaker? Circuit breaker. Circuit breaker. Oh, yeah. okay. oh that's, yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to say, if it's a fuse, you're allowed to change that yourself. Sure. Yeah, yeah. but I'm a, I, a circuit breaker, I need the A&P to change. There's, I don't think there's any way to reset the circuit that will get it to pop, nor you, do I think I want to do that, do I? You can test them by driving them with a power source, but those circuit breakers, I can speak from my airplane, they get old and they get crotchety and... You can't count on them to break when they're supposed to. And, the, and so these are these those horrible uh, non-pullable breakers yeah. that should have never yeah. been allowed in an airplane. Right. Yeah. So yep. I would just bite the bullet, and it's not that expensive. Just update the circuit breaker. Just replace it. Yeah. And and you you can replace one of those circuit breakers with a pullable one without. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it it's, won't it's, physically that, fit the that, same, but it'll oh, do really? the job. You can make you can bend the bus bar to kind of get it in there. I mean. Yeah. The, you may have to use a yeah. little jumper or something. Because I, I always, I always thought that that non-pullable circuit breakers should never have been certified because it gives you no way of disabling a circuit if if there's like a smoke in the cockpit or something like that. Yeah, you need to shut something off. Yep, no options. Yep, circuit breakers are easy. 
Okay. I, that's and, your, you can, that, and you can buy it and hand it to your mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So just. And then breathe side. down his neck while he. <laughs> yeah. Well, just as a side note, I'll throw out some numbers for you. Our last annual on the 172 was 15 grand from this mechanic. Uh, well, he had to install a new elevator, so a right elevator. So that was five right there and do some mags. But he charges about three grand to look at it. And um, it's a convenience fee for being on the field. So, yes, the 140 was 10 grand. So well, he's yeah. a little pricey. I, yeah. I, I, w- I would say this shop needs to be kept on a shorter leash than yeah. it's being kept on. It's probably because there's no maintenance officer there's, in the club. There's no so he's maintenance just running officer. rampant, doing anything he wants to. Anyway, I appreciate your guys' time. Thank you very much. And yeah. uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, appreciate Ryan. the call. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Thank Ryan. You. Have a good day. You too. Our next question is from Ernest, who thinks he hears a knock-knock-knock at the door. Go ahead, Ernest. Hi, all. I'm a big fan of uh, your work, and uh, Mike, I listen to every uh, podcast uh, on EA. It's actually kind of my badge of honor to be able to say that I've got them all checked out for the list. So thanks for everything you do. All, all 150 of them. Huh? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, and probably a few of them twice. <laughs> hey, Ernest, get a life. <laughs> wow. You are absolutely correct. I'm trying to become an ENP now. So. Oh, oh, congratulations. Oh, That's great. wonderful. When Love you're ready for that. a job in the real world of GAA aviation, give me yeah. a call. Paul will hire you in a heartbeat. You have to move to Tennessee, though. So yeah, that's but that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's Western Tennessee, so it's that's okay. right. We're flatlanders. <laughs> Absolutely, good stuff. Uh, yeah, well, from the video, um, we'll probably be able to hear it a bit there, but uh, I got this 172 on floats with the um, uh, 0360 A18 with the variable pitch. And uh, I've had the plane for four years, so actually four annuals. And um, that's how I count them. And I... um, So what is that, 180 horsepower? Yep, yep. Mm, Okay, because I was thinking a 172 on floats would be a little underpowered, but (laughs) with that engine, it's probably okay. Yeah, yeah. I find it uh, pretty nice and good time rate even with with that propeller, so... The one thing that got me uh, kind of uh, thinking for a while, and I put it behind me now, I guess, but since we're here, one of the ANPs at some point sat down idle, you could hear a knock. And it was kind of there for me too. But uh, after he mentioned it, then I became really, really aware of that. You and, can't uh, unhear it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we had a couple little things uh, tweaked uh, after that. And I, I don't say that it's still there that much, but... Um, Maybe uh, interesting to see what you guys think from the, the video, if you can yeah. hear it as well. Well, you, could, you couldn't hear it inside the cockpit, only outside? Uh, with, with the headsets on, I, I could never really hear it. It was really like uh, idling the plane and like walking around the plane. Being on floats, once it's on the ground, it's kind of easy to do. You'll hear it towards the end. I should have added that video, but I think right around there. Those are the flaps. Oh, that's there. Yeah, a little clack. Yeah, that sounds that's, like a lifter. That's, that's lifter. Lifters, yeah. lifter yeah. clatter. That's what I figured it had to be because he said a knock, which sort of you know you, most people equate knock with with a with detonation kind of thing. But in cars, right? Yeah, you can't really hear 
that in an airplane. But yeah, that's that's lifter clatter. So how do, how does he fix that? Isn't is it def- partially deflated well, lifter? Uh, I, my recommendation is to is to look left and look right and make sure there's nobody in either direction, and then pour some Marvel <laughs> mystery oil into the engine. <laughs> oh my God, not Marvel! I can't oh. believe I heard that. <laughs> And add a bottle of champagne Ian, while can, you're at it. Can, can we delete that? We need to mute that. Un- that's that, that's unreal. the only thing that I know of that Marvel Mystery Oil actually is is is, <laughs> got, is is good for is eliminating lifter clatter. Don't keep well, using it; just use it enough to eliminate d- the problem. Describe the mechanism, Mike. What's sticking or clogged up? The lifter. The well, lifter uh, itself. Uh, it, I mean, it would mean a lifter isn't pumping up completely. Okay. And and so, and so there's there's some free play in the. In the valve train, which there shouldn't be, the lifter is supposed to pump up and eliminate any of the free play. Well, couldn't he take each individual lifter out and oh, this yeah, yes, and you, then you, clean you, it? Yeah, you could. You could. That's a lot of work. I, it I, is a lot I, of work. I, I would throw the Marvel Mystery Oil in first, and if that doesn't work, then go to Colleen's Plan B. Because yeah, there are eight lifters, right? So it's kind of like which one? Take right. Your pick. And and in in Lycoming, you can't you can't remove the tappets, but you can remove the lifter bodies and clean them and stuff, put them back. So another thing, a question. So the videos of a landing, I assume that's after a flight and the oil's hot and at idle, the oil pressure is very low if the oil's hot. Does the same thing happen when the oil is cold and you're at idle? When you first start the engine, do you have the same? It's, let's don't say knock. We can call it a clack. Click. Click or a click or a clack. Or, or a clunk. <laughs> or a clunk, yeah. But it's not a knock. If you say knock, mechanics go straight to something totally different like Mike was saying. But is, is it happening when the oil is cold and you're at idle? I couldn't tell. Now that okay. I, I have a name for it, click, I'll be definitely <laughs> listening for that specifically right. and, and be able and, to uh, And it sounds isolate. to me like it's only it's it's probably only one lifter that's doing that. From the frequency of it, it's pretty pretty low frequency. Could he figure out which lifter it is by looking at um what what is it called when the um look at the how high the push rod? Yeah, lift. Yeah. Well, I, I I would think it you could probably localize it quite a bit if 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 you idled the engine with the top cowling off, use a stethoscope. Yep. Figure out where the noise is, where, where it's coming from. The thing is, as soon as you get it up to power at all, where the oil pressure comes up higher, yeah, it goes away. It may go away, and the lifter may be fine. It may only happen when you're at at low RPM, or more correctly, low oil pressure. So I would ensure that in cruise. At normal oil temperatures, about 180 degrees and cruise RPM, that you want to have your oil pressure set, oh, around 80 PSI, something right around there. And if your oil pressure is running maybe at 60 or 65, just running it up to 80 at cruise, that you may find that resolves the problem as well. Excellent. Does this issue cause any damage by slapping of the lifter against the push rod? Is it something that he should worry about, or is it just annoying sound? I'm glad you're mentioning that because um, that was my the, the next thing that I, I had in line with. I did get an oil analysis once, and I, I've got a, a second one scheduled, and uh, everything seemed fairly good except maybe chrome was a little bit higher, so I didn't know if there was any chrome parts uh, 
in that area or is that just there's there's no chrome in the valve train other than on the valve stems themselves yeah so that's not an issue loved seeing the video really interesting question and i think we answered it which is yeah (laughs) one in a row yeah so (laughs) thank you for calling in it was thanks great talking with you take care thanks for the call ernest bye ernest bye Our next question is from Alex, who's curious about testing fuel flow on the ground. Go ahead, Alex. Hey, Paul. Hey, Colleen. Hi, Mike. Again, just like the last uh, caller, I just want to say thank you for all you do. I've learned a whole lot, and I appreciate the podcast. Long-time listener. So aviation is one of those things where once you think you have like a little handle on it, um, (laughs) you realize you don't. Okay, you realize you really don't. That's you just fine. pretend you do, right? We, we've no, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're pretending that we have a handle yeah, on it, and all make, you make all believe, you, all you people <laughs> believe us. So we're okay with that. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so I'm right at the end of my commercial, and I, I I was talking to a student on a ramp. Well, I mean, he just came up. He had a question about his fuel and his wing and, and things like that on the ramp of my home airport. I fly out at New Jersey. I fly around the Big Apple Bravos, and I'm part of a um, probably the best club in New Jersey. And we've got three planes. We have a steam gauge DA-40, circa 2003. We have a glass 182, which is what I take the family in for like East Coast trips. We just came back from Niagara. It was a great trip. And so the student was asking about fuel and just what to do. And, you know, this person was just starting their journey. You know, they had two or three hours logged of I have no idea what I'm doing time. (laughs) And, you know, it's great. It was totally great. I was happy to be enthusiastic about it. However, he was telling me, he's like, you know, I noticed in the uh, diamond, you know, it has left and right, but it doesn't have both, like his high wing, you know, Cessna, his 172 that he, he's training in. And he says, well, what do you do to test it on the ground? And I said, oh, I said, for the diamond, I think the POH has you run it to 1500 RPMs and test it left and right for that. Mm-hmm. But other planes, you don't do that. You just like on your high wing, you just leave it on both. And I think that's the general thing I've been taught. Even when you switch it from left to right, if you're going to do that, um, they generally say, just leave it on bolt, just turn it when you're going to park, just in case there's an imbalance, you mm-hmm. know, if you're on a hill or something like that. And he got extremely excited <laughs> and told me, no, 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 no. Me and my CFI, when we were on the ground, we test both. That way, you know that both are working. And I said, you do? How do you do that? And he said, well, we run it up and you know, left and then both, then right and back. And, you know, we do that every time and you should do that too. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll look at that. And then I went back to the consideration. I would tell you, I went back to the DOH, looked at the, you know, highly accurate 1970s diagram of the fuel system and thought, well, okay, this thing's gravity fed, you know, it's left and right. I think that goes to just the fuel reservoir. So if his CFI him are doing that, I don't know what they're testing. With that said though, I know some other substances I've flown, like pipers and so forth. There seems to be some fuel systems where testing it on the ground is a viable thing to do. Like, you, you can do it. Where other ones, even the diamond, I looked at the fuel diagram that, that I was able to find online, and it wasn't clear to me exactly why they have you run it up to 1,500 other than maybe to maintain fuel pressure, you know, so there's no local, you're not sucking in air just in case one is, is, is empty. That, that, that's the general gist I got out of it. But I was just wondering from you guys, what can you do to test 
What is the general guidelines for testing? I guess two, two parts. One is, what do you do on the ground, if anything, and how do you determine that? And two, also in the air when I switch, one thing that I've been doing with the diamond is I'll switch. There's a 10-gallon you know, delta that the POH says you want to maintain for balance. And I just switch it. One thing I don't do, which I realize, uh, you know, like I said, you learn stuff, is I don't put the fuel pump on. And I should put, apparently I should put the fuel pump on, change it, and then turn it off. I've never had a problem, thankfully, but I was just curious, what are some of the guidelines, I guess, on the ground and in the air, all pilots should know about in terms of the both left and right game? Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. I, I, I frankly never heard of anybody try to test left and right on the ground in a, in a Cessna. But I think more significantly, I don't think I've ever heard of a Cessna that only fed from one side. That's a difficult thing to do in a gravity-fed system. And, you know, even we do run, occasionally run into a Cessna that, that, that has a, a vent plugged or something, but the, the high-wing Cessnas have their, their tanks cross-vented from one to another. So even if just one tank is vented, you know, the, the, the other one is, is going to get vented through the vent interconnect. And the Cessna 182 has a particularly simple fuel system. It doesn't have header tanks or anything like that the way, say, a 210 might have. So um, I, I think it's kind of a waste of time. I think it's dangerous to be, well, dangerous, ill-advised to be moving the fuel selector in the run-up. I like to leave it uh, on one setting that allowed me to taxi out and do my run-up uh, before I take off. I think my POH says that, too to just leave it and not change it last minute, like right yeah, before so, takeoff. Yeah. Like that would be on both, right? Yeah, and, and for me, it's on both, yes. If you, yeah. Yeah, if you have a both, but I agree with, with Mike and Colleen. I, I don't ever mess with the fuel selector on the ground for a couple of reasons. One is if you have a carbureted engine, like on a 172 or even a, a 182, not the restarts, but the legacies, the fuel bowl on the carburetor holds about 20 to 25 seconds of fuel at full power. So if you're doing your ground run up and you switch from one tank to the other tank, you're not gonna do that long enough to ever see if you have an interruption in fuel flow or contaminated fuel. You're just not on the ground long enough doing it. I would suggest whatever fuel tank you start with when the engine starts, leave it on that. Once you're airborne and you're over an airport, key piece of information <laughs> there, when you're over some other airport on your journey, make that first switch. My dad taught me we would take off on one tank. And when we got to the first nearby airport on our cross-country trip, we would switch to the opposite tank. This might be five minutes into the flight or 10 minutes. And that way, if there was a problem on that other tank, you still had lots of fuel left in the first tank to switch back to and go back home, land at some other airport. But yeah, switching tanks on the ground right before takeoff, I do not do that. Because if I start on the right tank and everything's good, and just before takeoff, I switch to the left, if there's a problem, it may show up 200 feet after rotation. That's just not where you want that well, to happen. You could even leave it possibly between the detents and, and be in- Oh, sure. Yeah, you could yeah. come into that situation. Yeah, but Paul, you, you kind of morphed into a discussion of airplanes that don't have a both position uh, we were i thought we started off here talking about the 182 that has a both position but the right. diamond I, i've yeah. got about 4000 hours in Cessna 182s and i don't think i have ever 
had that fuel selector in anything but the both position when I was flying. I never really understood why Cessna had a left and a right. I, I, I learned to fly in a Cessna 150 that, that only has a both position because right. <laughs> all, all it has is an on-off. Yeah. Fuel selector says on and off. And you don't have any choice. You're always flying in both. And, I use um, left and right to even my fuel load out sometimes. Well, you also have an airplane that will drain completely out of whichever tank you select. A 182 doesn't do that. You have it on both, and the left tank, well, it drains out of both, but the fuel that's taken from the right tank, instead of getting replenished with air from the vent that's on the left side, gets replenished with fuel that pushes through the vent line from the left side to the right. So you if, get if this the tanks huge- are, If the tanks are full enough, yeah. Yeah, you get this huge imbalance. Yeah, I mean, if it's on both, that's great. What you don't know if you're on both is if there's something impeding flow from one of the two tanks. You eventually find out because you'll be draining from one tank and not the other. But yeah, I mean, if I had a both position, I would probably do that. But the Cirrus, the Columbias, the 210s up until 83 did not have a both position. But if I had both, both is a great place to be most all the time. Is there a reason that the Diamond, the DA-40, let's go back to the non-both, because that's, I think, what Mike pointed out. And that's interesting, because like the POH and the Diamond has you run it up to 1,500 RPMs, I think, for a minute and switch it left and right. I'll Is be honest with you, I, I actually don't do that. <laughs> I've been always no. told, again, to leave it alone, but... Well, and that's an injected engine, so... Okay. It'll so, respond so pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah, I've never seen a POH that asked you to do it. Uh, in flying the Lancer Legacy, we don't switch tanks on the ground at all. We just leave it on one because, yeah, I mean, I want to know that tank's going to work when I take off. So I'm not going to change that until I'm in the air and, and at Over an altitude. Airport. <laughs> Over <laughs> an airport, yeah. <laughs> now, why do some POHs, have, I guess it's the nature of the fuel system, but some POHs allow you to switch from left and right without even touching the fuel pump? Right. There are some that, but then there's some that absolutely say you should put the fuel pump on before you swap them. Yeah, that's that's new to me. And the legacy, we don't turn the fuel pump on to switch tanks because um, you have a continental. Well, no, you have a Lycoming in I have yours, a Lycoming. right? Yeah, yeah. If you have the in your Lycoming engines fuel injected, you have the the fuel servo, and you can turn on the pump, and it doesn't change the delivery to the engine. It only ensures. It helps eliminate air. So va vapor suppression. Vapor right. suppression. The 210 has a low position on the pump. The Cirrus has a boost pump. Some of the others have pumps. But if you use the wrong pump, you can overwhelm the engine, especially on a Continental, with too much fuel, and then and that's really bad. So it, it totally depends on the engine. If the POH says turn on the pump, I would. If it says don't turn on the pump, I wouldn't. And Alex, I will say, I'm really impressed that you're studying the uh, fuel delivery diagrams on your individual engine types. So that's, that's pretty good engineering. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Alex, yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It's a great question. Yeah. No, it makes you think, think over, about what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, totally overthinking. <laughs> Probably a little overthinking, but, you know, once you've done it, just remember you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, we, we're, we're all card-carrying members of over, Overthinkers Anonymous anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Mike's book. I, I, I can attest to that. Which one? <laughs> good, good. Well, we really get into overthink overdrive when the three of us are just, you know, sitting around in Oshkosh chit-chatting. 
because it's all the same conversation that we have here, but it's between the three of it. It gets, yeah. Were we talking about getting in the weeds? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're weed, weed cutters. Yeah. Weed whackers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, great question. No, thanks, Alex. Super Alex. cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that's a wrap. What did we get right and what did we get wrong? We'd love to hear from you. Most importantly, keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump Paul because it's very entertaining. (laughs) Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. See ya, I think. (laughs) Bye, everybody.